Welcome to episode 209 of The Digital Life, a show about our insights into the future of design and technology. I'm your host, John Follett, and with me is founder and co-host, Dirk Niemeyer. Greetings, listeners. For our podcast topic this week, we're going to explore some recent trends in food tech and the variety of ways we can address the problem of feeding a growing global population. So according to the UN report, World Population Prospects, uh, the 2015 revision, current world population of 7.3 billion people is expected to reach 8.5 billion by 2030 and 9.7 billion by 2050. So in order to feed such a large number of people, we are, you know, in all likelihood going to need to change the way we eat. And what I mean by that specifically is it's very intensive, both agriculturally and economically, as well as in terms of uh, amount of food produced per landmass for us to be eating meat like beef, for instance. Uh, that is a great food. I, I love steak. Uh, it's mm, one of my it, it's one of my all-time favorite foods, but it just takes a lot of water. It takes a lot of grain. It takes just a, a lot of energy to transform, you know, in into you know a pound of a pound of meat. Not so, to mention taking a lot of years off your life, John. Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure. So it's just all around uh, a very pleasurable, but also probably from an efficiency standpoint and resource standpoint, probably you know not the greatest. So that's one area where there's a number of food tech uh, startups and you know established companies that that are taking a look and how we can better use our resources to generate the food we need for all these billions and billions of people that the UN so uh, kindly has has pointed out are uh, on their way. So what I find to be a you know a very interesting approach and and there's there's many approaches to you know sort of solving this but uh, one of them is is called cultured meat and uh, what's meant by that is that it's it's meat that is essentially grown in a laboratory environment. And so the big question is, can this cultured meat be a viable replacement for animal meat obtained in the usual way? So before we start uh, jumping into this and thinking like, hey, that seems a little bit insane, we should keep in mind that, you know, we've cultured animal products for a, a very long time, including things like insulin, which could really be considered the first cellular agriculture product ever. So in 1922, the first diabetic patient was treated uh, with an insulin injection uh, using animal insulin. So one term for this method for producing meat is uh, cellular agriculture. So they're taking the cells and then uh, uh, growing them out rather than having the animal grow them for us. So there's all kinds of startups in this area. Uh, some are focused on chickens, some are fo focused on beef. Dirk, when you think of this problem set, I mean, are you willing to forego your filet mignon for, say, a cultured meat product of maybe similar 
composition, but grown in a lab? Maybe, right? I mean, there's two parts to it, right? One is discontinuing eating the food that we're currently eating. Mm-hmm. And two is starting to eat the new food that is that is offered. And I, th- I think they're totally separate things, actually. So for me to stop eating filet mignon, I, look, first of all, I don't eat that much filet mignon. Sadly, um, eating more would be nice. But as you know, that little joking aside, the gap is not that far from where I am today to um, largely, if not completely, not eating, let's just say beef. That's a trip that I can take. I don't want to take it. You know, I do enjoy, like you, beef, but it's complicated. I mean, I know it's not super healthy for me. I don't need a ton of it, but when I do, I know it's not the best choice. Um, you know, I, I was for a year as a grad student, a vegetarian, actually. Wow. And yeah, and that was because I really was struggling philosophically with with beings being slaughtered for the, um, you know, gluttony of my taste buds, let's say. And what stopped me at that time from being vegetarian was I had two young children and it was just completely impractical. Like that was a tough, tough year of trying to, trying to make it all work. But so I still have some of those sort of proclivities um, inside of me. And if the rest of the world were turned a little bit more in that direction where it was easier to get delicious, affordable, convenient things as opposed to the beef, I, I could I could do that. So for me, like speaking, you know, the user group of one, um, it's not that far to go to to go from from eating beef to not eating beef. The the harder part to me is getting a beef replacement that I I want to that I want to eat because looking at other products, um, food products that are on the market for a long time, right? There, there's almost no product that's light or fat-free that I enjoy. It's like, right? you know, you have the sour cream and then you have the light sour cream. It's like, you know, there's a big difference there. And mm-hmm. it's like, why why bother? You know, if I'm going to eat this, this fat-free sour cream crap, why not just eschew the sour cream entirely? So, you know, they've spent many decades with, with you know, let's, let's use fat-free sour cream as the example on the market in a state where enough people buy it that it's a viable product. Yet when I buy it, I'm like, Oh God, like get me, get me out of here. So for something like cultured meats, which, you know, when you first said the phrase, I thought was a a cattle that liked miles Davis, right. uh, (laughs) (laughs) You know, um, that's, that's a long way away from just, just from being something that I would want to eat, that I would accept to eat, let alone all of the problems around, uh, getting it produced, getting it to people, doing so at an affordable price point. Like, there's just a whole bunch of of hurdles there, a whole bunch, far beyond even just the taste and and the aesthetic acceptance of it, which is of course a big a big part of it. So, yeah, I mean, you can get me off beef, but I think it's going to be a hell of a lot longer time before you get me on cultured meat. Right. There's a a biotech startup called Super Meat that is is actually working on cultured chicken and their idea is is to have uh, sort of a micro uh, agriculture you know in your grocery store or in your you know in your home so you you might have this cultured chicken growing in your in your kitchen someday so you you know you come down in the morning 
get get your coffee and then check in to see if the chicken breast how 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 much that's grown overnight. Um, mm, delicious. Not not too dissimilar from culturing your own yogurt. I don't know if you did that uh, or if your parents did that in the seventies, but uh, no, that, no, yeah, that was you know uh, we had these little yogurt cultures, and my mom would you know grow the yogurt so. Bring she was a hippie. She wasn't she. She was yeah, a hippie. very much. So that that would take me back, except you know, in in this case with super meat, you'd be creating uh, chicken super breast. Meat. Yes, and it's impressive too. I uh, I think the big problem that they're going to run into with any of these is is the commercialization problem, you know, and and getting over those hurdles, because you know it's called commercialization as if the the price point is sort of the um, inflection point here, but buried in that is also the cultural conversation. So I don't know if that falls into commercialization or not, but just, you know, this marketing slash cultural discussion around, you know, what we're eating, which I th- I could totally see that getting politicized. But w- it we'll, already is, I would say. It yeah. Is. So you can see that coming, like we need more things to be politicized about. Um, well, it's unfortunate, right? Because, I mean, the, the fact is, I'm going to go to decades, not years. It's going to be decades before the Ted Nugent Kid Rock segment of society is willing to get on board with cultured meats. They are going to eat their good old American red meat uh, proudly, defiantly for a long time to come yet. And that's going to be tough to get over. Yeah, I I see that as as a flashpoint in the next wave of the culture wars, right? So there's other kinds of protein as well. And I wanted to raise this next item because it, it is extremely viable, but maybe kind of icky from, uh, you know, the Western point of view, which is grasshopper protein. So grasshoppers are like 72% protein. They have all your essential amino acids. They have no saturated fats. And, you know, in other cultures, it's perfectly acceptable to munch on insects. No problem. But here in, in, you know, Western nations, I, I think we'd be a little bit hesitant, maybe, to try these out. Whereas uh, in Asia and Africa, you know, it's, it's just sort of, it's a little bit more embedded uh, into uh, sort of the food culture. Uh, so less food, about- food ways is the sociological term, John. Okay. So not as much of a problem uh, in other countries. Uh, However, there are sort of sneaky ways that you could get grasshopper protein into foods if you weren't really into, you know, looking at insect parts. And the way it's done is that, you know, you mill the grasshoppers and they're made into uh, basically a protein powder. And then that protein powder goes into things like uh, shakes or uh, protein bar or uh, your pasta sauce, or your your muffin, right, for your breakfast. So for decades, we've had these stores, GNC, which I think stands for General Nutrition Center, and mm-hmm. they sell these giant vats of powder that you dump into things. I mean, isn't that no different than those? It's just, let's call it grasshopper technology instead of whatever weird technology I, they've been selling th- for all this time? Yeah, I think that's basically it. And and I think you wouldn't even need to go to a GNC to get your, your grasshoppers. I, th- I think you would just, you know, get Whole your... Whole Foods it. Whole yeah, Foods it. You would just get whatever, your protein shake, and it would have a little friendly grasshopper, 
you know, in the ingredients there. Uh, and awesome. that's it. And then we'd all feel a little bit more spry, I suppose, um, <laughs> after consuming grasshopper protein. So that's, that's a great solution. Once again, probably not going to actually see the grasshoppers, but um, definitely technology for, you know, cultivating mass amounts of, of grasshoppers. It's not, you know, grasshopper farming is, is not typical right now. So that is a technology question as well. Um, so the third and, and final sort of trend that I wanted to touch on today was just talking a little bit about managing food waste, uh, especially in the United States. So there are a number of startups who are looking at this problem, and it's a really interesting, I mean, it's essentially a logistical uh, and, and, and enterprise resource planning problem. So, so you and I are pretty familiar with both of those problem sets. So you're talking about enterprise level management uh, of, you know, multiple sources of food where, you know, you have these time limitations and at a certain point, food that was once, you know, sellable or you know whether it's produce or or packaged goods or or what have you, they're you know reach the point that by uh, certain regulations they need to be removed from consumer sale. So there's this point at which the food gets marked down at your typical grocery store, and you can you can sort of buy food that's not as fresh. Well, right at, now it's just thrown away, right? I yeah, mean, and then part. at a certain point it's just becomes garbage, which is kind of crazy. Apparently, there's $218 billion worth of wasted food in the U.S. on a yearly basis. Not uh, surprised. I'm which, not at all surprised. Which seems pretty horrible, uh, all Does things considered. Does seem horrible, but not surprising. We're so, such a wasteful culture, John. So so there's there's a, a startup called Spoiler Alert, um, which sort of helps <laughs> the wrong name <laughs> helps uh, uh, helps companies manage you know this food so it won't be wasted whether they're donating it but you know before it gets to the point where where it needs to be thrown out or whether they provide discounted food sales and so so ultimately this food can either become you know a meal or could be an input for some manufacturing process where you know that that type of food is needed so there's another area where digital technology is helping to shorten or reduce the amount of waste and and sort of shorten that cycle but in terms of food technology you know i think all of these areas whether you're looking at alternatives to the foods we eat or you're looking at better ways for managing the food we produce now. I think all of that's really going to need to come together because, I mean, we're only at sort of the very beginnings of this uh, sort of population growth problem, uh, and it's not going to get better anytime soon. So I think we really need to address this in a significant way. That's true. And I mean, some of it, I'm surprised, hasn't been addressed earlier, right? I mean, there are these... Uh, let's just focus on one specific part of the the food waste um, chain. The grocery stores. I mean, they're they're throwing away a ton of stuff, a ton, a ton, a ton of stuff. And there's such an opportunity to say, you know, um, these tomatoes are the the prime beautiful tomatoes, and they are double the price of normal tomatoes. And then your average run of the mill tomatoes are the the typical price that people are used to. And then the ones that people aren't buying that over some period of time nobody's taking, they're going down to, you know, dirt dirt cheap rock bottom 
get your crummy cheap tomatoes here, right? I mean, even if you didn't have the waste reduction, even if you assume at the end of the day, there's going to be the same amount of waste, it's that kind of price stratification. I mean, it's been proven again and again in, in really every, every product service experience category. You're going to make a lot more money for it because those prime tomatoes that look really beautiful, even though there's not going to be a big difference in terms of taste or performance, people are going to want that good tomato. You know, people are going to pay the premium for that. People want the best. You know, it's the whole, you know, mindset of of sort of the, the spoiled American parent of only the best for my child, only the best. People are going to pay for only the best. And the reality and practice is... A scheme like that that is executed properly would dramatically reduce food waste. It's just a matter of, of implementing it. So I'm, I'm surprised something like that hasn't been done a whole lot sooner. Listeners, remember that while you're listening to the show, you can follow along with the things that we're mentioning here in real time. Just head over to the digitallife.com, that's just one L in the digital life, and go to the page for this episode. We've included links to pretty much everything mentioned by everybody. So it's a rich information resource to take advantage of while you're listening or afterward if you're trying to remember something that you liked. You can find The Digital Life on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Player FM, and Google Play. And if you want to follow us outside of the show, you can follow me on Twitter at John Follett. That's J-O-N-F-O-L-L-E-T-T. And of course, the whole show is brought to you by Involution Studios, which you can check out at GoInvo.com. That's G-O-I-N-V-O.com. Dirk? You can follow me on Twitter at D Niemeyer. That's at D-K-N-E-M-E-Y-E-R. And thanks so much for listening. So that's it for episode 209 of The Digital Life. For Dirk Niemeyer, I'm John Follett, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.